The first section is the prologue. This is chapters 1 through basically the first couple of verses of 3. And like I mentioned before, this prologue is divided into two sections. The first section is mostly descriptive and factual. This is what happened from the time of Joshua's death to the time of the judges that we're going to be introduced to. And the second section is it goes back flashbacks to Joshua right when he dies and goes through this time period again with a brief theological commentary on the nation. So chapter 1 verse 1. After Joshua died, the Israelites asked Yahweh who should lead the invasion against the Canaanites and launch the attack. And Yahweh said the men of Judah should take the lead. Be sure of this. I am handing the land over to them. And the men of Judah said to their relatives, the men of Simeon, invade our allotted land with us and help us attack the Canaanites. Then we will go with you into your allotted land. So the men of Simeon went with them. So this immediately begins with Joshua's death. Now remember, the book of Joshua ended as long as Joshua and the elders that were elders with him during his rule were alive, Israel did what was right. They were godly, and they did what was right in God's eyes. Joshua dies, and the assumption in verse 1 is Joshua's dead, but a lot of those godly elders that surrounded Joshua are still alive. And so he starts in the beginning. And what you see in this first paragraph is good, godly character. The first thing you notice is that Israel has immediately done what? They ask God. They go to God and they say, what should we do? Well, they know what they should do. They ask specifically, who should lead us in the invasion? Okay, so who should lead us? Joshua's dead now. Who should lead us? And God's answer is Judah. Because Judah was the leader that Moses, or sorry, Jacob established and then Moses established later. So now that they have no single leader anymore, the tribe of Judah is leading them. So they do. Judah leads. So right now we see them asking God, which is great. They're asking the right questions, which is good. God is giving them the answer that they kind of should already know, but it doesn't hurt to double check when it comes to God. And they're obediently following God's answer. Everything is great. And then you see unity. Remember the end of Joshua ends with a major point that they need to be unified. So I told you that Simeon is scattered in Judah. So Judah says, hey, let's partner together. You help us defeat the enemy, and we'll help you defeat the enemy, and we'll be brothers in this. So you see brotherly camaraderie and unity and partnership and helping each other, and everything is good. This is starting off by saying, look, everything is good. Then we verse 4. The men of Judah attacked, and Yahweh handed the Canaanites and the Perizzites over to them. So Yahweh gives them victory. And we know that when Yahweh gives you victory, it's because you're doing things the way that you're supposed to. So God responds in faith in accordance to their faith. They killed 10,000 men at Bezik, and they met Adonai Bezik. And remember, Adonai Bezik, a figure showed up in the previous book, and Adonai means Lord, and Bezik, or Zedek, means righteousness. So this is the Lord of righteousness. And he fought him. They defeated the Canaanites and the Perizzites, and when Adonai Bezik ran away, they chased him and captured him. And then they cut off his thumbs and big toes. And Adonai Bezik said, Seventy kings with thumbs and big toes cut off used to lick up food scraps under my table. God has repaid me for what I did to them. And they brought him to Jerusalem where he died. 
And the men of Judah attacked Jerusalem and captured it, and they put to sword the sword it and set the fire city on fire. Now what do you notice? They mutilated him and they let him live. The reality is God commanded them to kill everyone, especially the kings, who are always the most jacked up and moral because they're leading everybody else in it. And we know he's a really messed up person because he did this kind of stuff to tons of other people. So this isn't a misunderstood king in the Canaanite culture. There's no confession of faith like Rahab. He's incredibly immoral. He's oppressed and mutilated other people for pleasure, and they keep him alive. So they, now, had they completely compromised and joined the enemy? Had they failed to kill everybody? No, it's just one teeny little compromise. One guy they decide to keep alive. Now, why do they keep him alive? Because they're going to make him the Joker. You have to realize in the ancient world, the Joker is not the Batman Joker, necessarily. Although there is more truth to that than... And he's not the Joker on the cards. And he's definitely not the Joker that comes in and entertains the king with jokes and juggling balls. That's the kid-friendly version. The Joker is usually a great king, a very powerful king, an unstoppable king, an unstoppable warrior, knight, or general. Somebody that is absolutely feared and he's moving through territories, is dominating everything, and you can't take him down. And then one day, somehow, everything tips in your favor and you're able to defeat that guy. You want everybody to know that you defeated the unstoppable guy. So you, you mutilate him in some kind of a way and you cripple him so that he can't be a warrior ever again. And then you just shame him. And when you have parties, you bring him out and everybody spits on him, trips him and knocks him down and everybody laughs because here's the great mighty warrior who is now a joke. And that's the joker in the ancient world. And you see this with Samson. They gouge out his eyes, shave his head, make him grind grain like a woman does, and then they bring him out, and they're all drunk, and they spit on him and trip him, and they laugh, and they're like, here's the great warrior that we all feared. That's the joker in the ancient world. And so the Israelites have mutilated a human, which we already talked about this, God never allowed for the, the, the mutilation of his image, the mutilation of his children. He never allowed for you to mock them and humiliate them in any kind of way. It's one thing to execute judgment. It's another thing to take pleasure. This starts sounding like the pagans, where they glory in the defeat of their enemy and parade them around, talk about how amazing they are. And the only people that cut things off like this is the Canaanites. The Canaanites cut off hands and heads and wear them as necklaces and belts. And so they're cutting his toes off so he loses balance. And they're cutting his thumbs off so he can't hold swords anymore. And so they have so seriously compromised by not fully obeying God, which is the big one, and then mutilating the image of God and using the image of God for their entertainment and their pride, which is not what God wanted. God wanted execution of judgment, not glorying in how awesome that they are that they defeated a great enemy and mutilated and shamed him. You see that they faithfully went to God. They faithfully executed his judgment. Yeah, kind of. And then now their pride is beginning to kick in. They want a trophy. They want a trophy. 
Here's the other thing that's interesting though, but the narrator plays with you a little bit. Because the narrator allows Adonai Bezik to talk, which is very rare for God to let people talk, let alone somebody like this. And Adonai Bezik says, I deserve this. This is justice. And in a way, the narrator is saying, he's right. And I agree with him. It is justice that this is happening to him like this. Technically, he does deserve this. However, it's still not what God wants. You can make a very literal good argument that he deserves that. It fits the Talion laws. Eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth, nail for a nail. However, it still violates the character of God. It still violates the character of God. And so in some sense, in a worldly way, this, he deserves this. But at the same time, God has called Israel to not be like the nations. And they're beginning to act like the nations. And notice the first thing that God points out in their slow decline is that they begin to pick up the culture of the people around them. They begin to pick up the culture of the people around them. The most dangerous compromise we can ever make is when we adopt the culture and the practices of entertainment from the culture and justify it. This is the beginning of their downward spiral. Verse 9, Later the men of Judah went down to attack the Canaanites living in the hill country of Negev in the lowlands. And the men of Judah attacked the Canaanites, good, living in Hebron. Hebron used to be called Kirith Araba. And they killed Sheshai and Haiman and Talamai. And from there they attacked the people of Debir. And Debir used to be called Kerasif. And Caleb said to the man who attacks and captures Kirith Sefer, I will give my daughter Aksa as a wife. And when Othniel son of Kenaz... Caleb's younger brother captured it. Caleb gave his daughter to Aksa, his wife. Caleb's younger brother, which we talked about in the book of Joshua, should actually be his nephew. Several times throughout the book of Numbers, and now here, we're told in verse 13 that Caleb is the son of Jephunneh. And then right here we're told in verse 17 that Othniel is the son of Kenaz. And it really should be the nephew. And this is very obvious by the fact that they have two different fathers. Now, this sounds really familiar, especially since we just in Joshua, and that was the last thing in Joshua. And the question is, why is this exactly word for word again in the book of Judges? Well, for this reason. So remember, Caleb was that one of the 12 spies who said, we can take the land. And he, God rewarded him with extra cities than everybody else. And he said, I want the one with the Anakites, the giants, and he conquered it. He basically says, I want to give the city, I want to give my daughter Aksa in marriage to whoever can conquer this city. Now in our culture, remember that sounds very like macho-like. That's a wrong reason to give your daughter off to marriage. But remember we talked about the fact that the only way that they can defeat a city is if God is with them. And the only way God is going to be with them is if they are a godly person. So there is no way I can know whether the future son-in-laws are going to marry my daughters are actually godly or not. There's no way I can know, unless I just watch them over a long period of time, but unfortunately they're already married by then. The reality is, how can I know for sure that they're godly people before the wedding day? And Caleb figured it out. If only godly people can have God give them victory over cities, then have a man conquer a city. And when he can, that proves that he's godly because God was with him. And so he offers him to Othniel. And Othniel does it without hesitation. 
Now, this is here for two different reasons than it was in Joshua. The reason it's in this book is one, it's giving you, it's transitioning from Caleb, the older generation of Joshua, to Othniel, the younger generation, who's going to be the first judge in chapter three. So it's the transition. Look, here we have a really godly man in the first generation, and he's passing this off to a really godly man in the next generation. That's a good place to start the book of Judges as we talk about the judges. That's one reason it's here. The second reason it's here is the emphasis is now on the treatment of women. And Judges is really going to focus on women a lot. Women are talked about more in Judges than probably any other book. I mean, I'm not saying that literally, and don't quote me on that, but it feels like it. And what you're going to see is that one of the commentaries that God is going to make about a culture is the way that they treat women. The way that they treat women and the way they treat sex is the two most major ways that you can learn about a culture than anything else. And so we're seeing here, before we enter the downward spiral of mistreating women in the book of Judges, we're seeing that Caleb is a godly father who is making sure that his daughter has a godly husband, and she ends up marrying a godly man who's going to become the first judge, who's going to be totally obedient to God, and he's going to do everything God wants without hesitation. And the idea is that these two men, the father-in-law and the son-in-law, are going to set the standard for what it means to be a godly character leader and how you treat women. Because this is going to be the litmus test for everything else in the book of Judges. Right now, we're getting how do you treat women. And the first thing that Judges is telling us is, fathers, you take care of your daughters. You make sure that they're taken care of, protected, and more specifically than any kind of financial way, is that they have godly men in their lives that are going to take care of them when you're gone. That's how you treat women. And Othniel is going to be a godly man who marries her. And the implication is if he's a godly man who's able to take the city, then he's going to treat her well like his uncle has modeled for him. Women are being taken care of. They're valued. And then we learn about the springs being given to her like we did in the last book, which is a symbol of fertility, which means Caleb is making sure that they have the ability to pass on the line and continue it. But it also means that they're giving them gifts that she's loved, she's provided for. And so you see a deep care and a deep love and a deep provision for these women and making sure that they have everything they need in life and that they're provided for. And that's very important for you to understand because that's going to set up the rest of Judges. At the same time, it's the men who are the warriors. I know I'm going to walk on some eggshells with some people in this particular unit, but the Bible does portray that the men are supposed to be the warriors. And it doesn't mean that women can't be warriors, but the first and primary people that God wants to use is men. Now, this does not mean that women cannot be leaders. It does not mean that women cannot be warriors. Listen, I don't care what the media tells you. I don't care where you've come from. This is not a Democratic or Republican or liberal or conservative comment. This is every psychological study, every sociology study that's ever been done has constantly confirmed there is a difference between men and women. <laughs> the media wants to make you think that the psychology is saying, oh, we're learning new things now. But I've been doing a lot on this kind of stuff. 
And I've been looking, I've been following a lot of psych. I've always been, in, I've never wanted to be a psychologist, but I've always been interested in psychology. And I do a lot of reading and paying attention to as much as I can understand. Sometimes it's like too heady. But every study, every psychologist that's respected in any kind of way says there are differences. This whole equality of like there's no differences is bogus. Yes, there's equality of value and treatment and, and roles of women. I believe that women can be leaders and all that kind of stuff. I believe that. But there is a difference. And the reality is men are just innately more geared towards warriors than women are. It doesn't mean that women can't be great warriors and fighters, and there's not great women who've done great things in the military, but all those women would tell you that they had to work a whole lot harder than everybody else because they're just not built the same way, and they're not wired to compartmentalize things like men who can go out and stuff their emotions and die for people. And there's lots of things I could talk about, but I'm just saying that for the sake because we're going to deal with two particular stories where God is trying to make a say women are meant to be protected. They're meant to be taken care of. They're meant to be provided for. And then it doesn't mean that women are incapable of taking care of themselves. It doesn't mean that they're not capable. And there's, and, and God, and listen, I might be throwing a theological grenade under your door, but even with the men being the leader and the head of the household kind of thing, I don't think that was meant to be universal across everything in life. I don't think God, I think God was mostly talking about the spiritual life. But there's nowhere in the Bible where you see any sense that women can't be presidents or they can't be leaders of companies. You don't get nowhere does the Bible. In fact, God is going to lift up prophets like Deborah and, and other people who are actually going to be political leaders. So I think we've taken that whole headship thing way too far. And it's led to a lot of gross violations in America, which has led to the feminist movement, which started off by Christian women in a good way, but then spiraled out of control when the world got ahead of it. But I know this is like a way bigger topic. But my point is this. There is a difference between men and women, and God is making this point here and saying that, yes, women can be warriors, but that was not God's ideal. God's ideal is that men are to die first. Men are to go out and fight first. Men are to sacrifice themselves for the women first and foremost. And at the end of the book, we're going to see women being used by God in a warrior-like way, and they're going to be lifted up by the prophets and praised for what they do, which shows that God is not saying women can't do it. But right here, God is saying, but that's not the ideal. When the women has to be the warrior, then something's wrong in the culture. And we're starting to see this in Hollywood now. Hollywood has literally said that they don't want white males as lead characters anymore in movies, and they don't want men being superheroes anymore. And you're seeing remakes of every movie, Ghostbusters and Ocean's 8 and all these in the new Star Wars movie. They make all the men look like idiots who have no idea what's going on, and the women come in and save everything. Now, I'm okay with women being leaders and all that kind of stuff. And I know that women are sometimes more intelligent than men, and men can be idiots, that kind of stuff. But there's an actual agenda to make every man look pathetic and needing saving and not being a leader. One of, my, I, one of the movies I think did a great job of balancing it is Iron Man 3. And I don't know if you like comic book movies, but in Iron Man 3, they did a good job because he ends up dating this girl by the name of Potts. Uh, that's her last name. Um, in the second movie, and then when you get to the third movie, they end up rescuing both each other. 
there's a scene where like I almost thought like oh great she's a superhero at rescuing Iron Man he's in the suit she doesn't have a suit and yet she's more capable of rescuing them than he was in the suit but then it turns around and he ends up rescuing her and you see this incredible partnership and it's the only movie I've really seen in Hollywood where there's a partnership like that there's other movies that kind of done that but that really just stuck out to me because now all these new movies are coming out and just destroying men and I get that men have done it to women for a long period of time. There's a long history of that. But you don't make things right by turning around and destroying the other people now. It's, it, you don't make things right by saying it's my turn now. You make things right by getting back to what God wanted it to be to begin with. And that's partnership. Right now, I just want you to see whatever your politics is, whatever. This isn't a commentary on America because America just muddies everything. Right now, all God is saying is... He designed men to first and foremost take care of women. And not that women can't do it, but that's what God wants. That's what God wants. And, and there's nothing wrong with me taking care of my wife and my wife partnering with me and being just as much of an equal with me and being very capable and we doing it all together. But what becomes really wrong is when I don't even try to take care of her. Does that make sense? I'm not saying I'm always the one who has to take care of her. I think we should both be taking care of each other, but I think I'm held to an even higher standard that I have no excuse to stop in any kind of way. Does that make sense? And I think that's what God is saying here. And this sets the standard. This sets the standard for what it is. Now, if we want to hash out the little details of what that looks like in our culture, that's another conversation at a table with a bunch of Christians who love each other, and we talk about the individual economic, political, social things of how that works out in our culture today. But right now, God is just trying to say, these men are taking care of their women, and that is godly. Verse 16. Now the descendants of Kenite, Moses' father-in-law, went up with the people from Judah, from the city of date palm trees, to a rod in the desert of Judah, located in the Geb. And they went and lived with the people of Judah. So who are the Kenites? The Kenites are the relatives of Moses. When Moses married into the family of the Midianites, Jethro, there was a particular clan in the Midianites called the Kenites. So Moses married Jethro's daughter, Zipporah, who is a Kenite. And the Kenites are below Edom. They're off this map. So they're more towards the Sinai Peninsula, but in the Arabian Desert. And the Kenites, they, they took care of Moses. When Moses and the Israelites came out of Egypt and they were all slaves, Jethro brought his clan to them and he took care of them. He provided them. In fact, probably what mostly the book of the Bible is saying is that the Canaanites actually did worship Yahweh. See, Mount Sinai is in Yahweh territory. Moses was sent to the Canaanites to live with them for 40 years to learn about Yahweh. And God appeared to Moses in Canaanite territory. There's a lot of evidence that suggests that the Canaanites did worship Yahweh. And that's where Moses learned about Yahweh to take it back to Egypt and deliver his people. And they go back to Canaanite territory when Yahweh gives them the law. The Canaanites took care of Moses' and his people and God through Moses, decided to reward them and say, even though you're not descendants of Abraham, well, actually they are. I can go back on that. Because Abraham had another wife after Sarah's death, Keturah, and one of his children was Midian. And they became the Midianites. So they are a descendant. So God says, 
I will give you some territory in the land of Israel as a reward for the way that you took care of my people when they came out of Egypt. Not all the Midianites, but the Canaanite clan came with Moses into the land, and Moses, in the end of his life, and Joshua in the book of Joshua, gave them land. Now it shows that the Canaanites are now coming up into Judah, and they're living in Judah just like God promised they could. So they're not technically the full descendants of Isaac, but they are the descendants of Abraham as the brother of Isaac, so to speak. So they're living there. So the men of Judah went with their brothers, and so saying that Judah is honoring this promise. That's good. The men of Judah went, and now it's also important because the Canaanites are going to come back later in the book of Judges. They're going to play a key role in the book of Judges. The men of Judah went with them, brother of men of Simeon, and defeated the Canaanites living in Zephath, and they wiped out um, Zephath. So the people now call this city Hormah. And the men of Judah captured Gaza, Ashkelon, Ekron, and the territories surrounding each of these cities. So they're conquering lots of cities. That's good. Yahweh was with the men of Judah. They conquered the hill country, which is good. But they could not conquer the people living in the coastal plains because they had iron chariots with rimmed wheels. So pimp out my chariot. Caleb received Hebron. So the narrator tells you they conquered all the hill country, which goes right up the center here. But Judah could not conquer the coastal plains because the people there had iron chariots. Now the narrator is telling you that. And your first thought is what? Why not? Yeah, wait a minute. God can't stop iron chariots? We know he can because he stopped the iron chariots at the end of the book of Joshua when Joshua conquered them and hamstrung the horses. But the narrator is telling you this. Because this is the narrator beginning to challenge you with 201 literature. He kind of wink, wink says, but they couldn't conquer them because they had iron chariots. He's telling you how they were thinking. But he's saying it to kind of wake you up. You see, it's normal for us as humans to think, oh, but we couldn't conquer them because they had tanks and aircraft carriers and we only had like jeeps and horses. We think that way all the time, right? Every history book you pick up, we say, oh, they defeated them because they had superior firepower. And every one of us thinks, well, yeah, of course. The problem is we're not the chosen people of God, and we were never promised that superior firepower would never overtake us. But they are. So what the narrator's doing is he's challenging you. If he would have just had the people say, we can't defeat them because they have iron chariots, you might unintentionally fall into that and think, well, well that kind of makes sense. But the fact that the narrator is saying it, you're like, wait a minute, that's weird for him to say something like that, which makes you pay attention all the more. And what the narrator is saying is, this is the way they're thinking, but with a wink-wink sarcastic comment, which I wish you could see sarcasm in print, he's saying, but that's ridiculous. They conquer all these people but when they come against superior military firepower, their faith fails. It's easy to have faith when the people are the same or lesser than you. It's a lot harder when you go into Philistine territory and they're more powerful and they're more wealthy and they have more technology. And then you begin to think, how can we ever? And I think a lot of Christian parents are thinking that right now, like, 
oh my goodness, these kids have all this technology and they're so consumed with it. How can I ever compete? Well, if you do what God has commanded you in Deuteronomy and you have faith, you can. Now, does that guarantee your kids will automatically turn out right? No, because you have no guarantee in any kind of generation. But can you compete? Yes. Yes. If you follow what God has laid out in Deuteronomy and you believe that God will bless that and reward that, you can compete. No matter how overwhelming the media and the technology feels. And believe me, all the teachers at our school feel overwhelmed by it right now. And as a parent that knows that my eight-year-old in second grade is already saying, but they have a cell phone and they have a cell phone. (laughs) And I'm like, and I don't care because we're banning all those next year. (laughs) Yay. So it's not going to be an issue. Overall, my daughters, they understand. We've tried very hard to show. And look at them and the difference between their imagination and yours. You can compete. You can compete if you just trust God and do the things that he's called you to do. This shows their thinking. So now we've seen them compromising by acting like the culture, by taking trophies. They're literally human beings, which makes the trophy even more jacked up. At least ours are cheap plastic on marble. But now they're taking human beings as trophies. But now they're also thinking technology trumps Yahweh. Verse 20, Caleb received Hebron just as Moses had promised. He drove out th- the three Anakites, and the men of Benjamin, however, did not conquer the Jebusites living in Jerusalem, and the Jebusites live with the people of Benjamin of Jerusalem to this very day. Then he goes in and says, oh, by the way, if they can't take the Philistines over here because they have iron chariots, meanwhile, Caleb's over here conquering giants. Oh, but Caleb is down here conquering giants, and about 10 miles north of them, Benjamin can't take the Jebusites, who don't have giants. He's showing you that some people are still doing it, but other people are beginning to compromise. Now we have them not killing the king like they're supposed to, not defeating these people over here because they have iron chariots, and now they're even beginning to give up in the hill country. And they're beginning to wane off. And they're beginning to get exhausted. And they're beginning to show a lack of faith. Verse 22. When the men of Joseph attacked Bethel, Yahweh was with them. And when the men of Joseph spied out Bethel, it used to be called Luz. So the Canaanite name of this city is Luz. But Jacob gave it a different name in the book of Genesis, Bethel, the house of God. So it's called Luz by the Canaanites, but the Israelites have been calling it Bethel since the day of Jacob. The spies spotted a man leaving the city, and they said to him, If you show us a secret entrance into the city, we will reward you. He showed them a secret entrance into the city, and they put the city to the sword, but they let the man and his extended family leave safely. (coughs) Now, what do you notice? What's the problem here? They let him live. Did they let him live because he had faith in God? They let him live because he showed them a secret entrance to the city, and they gave him a reward. By the way, you don't give people rewards for accepting Christ. God does that. And not only that, why did they need a Canaanite to show them a way into the city when they had Yahweh? They're saying, well, Yahweh can't get us into the city, so we need to find somebody who's on the inside of this city. And then we'll let them live, even though there's a blatant disobedience to Yahweh. But it doesn't seem that bad. 
Because how many movies and how many military war movies have we seen where that's exactly what they had to do and we praise them for that? But the difference is, we're not the chosen people of God. I don't mean the nation. I don't mean us, the nation of America. And so the reality is they're making little compromises. It's not like they've gone off and like killed a bunch of people and they're drink, doing drugs and alcohol and all that kind of stuff. They're just making little disobedient things where we, we, we need somebody else other than the Yahweh to get in the city. Oh, we'll let him live. It's not that big of a deal. He's just a guy with a family. And he did help us after all. And, and you know you can th we think this way all the time. You, you think, oh, it's not that big of a deal. Oh, but is it? Because then it goes on and says, verse 26, He moved to the Hittite country and built a city. He named it Luz. And it was kept this name to the very day. Did they actually conquer Luz? No. They conquered that particular city, but the Canaanite that left it went out and rebuilt the Canaanite city again and called it Luz, which means technically they didn't really conquer a city. They got rid of one, it was replaced with another, so they still have one city, and it's led by a Canaanite guy. One little compromise that didn't seem that big of a deal. He did help us after all. We should let him live. And hey, isn't letting people live a godly thing? I mean, you see how we could rationalize this stuff. But then he goes out and he rebuilds the city that they conquer, and they still have a Canaanite city in their territory. They still have a Canaanite city in their territory. One step forward and one step back. Verse 27, The men of Manasseh did not conquer Bethshan, Tanaak, or their surrounding towns, nor did they conquer the people living in Dor, Ebliam, and Megiddo, or their surrounding towns. The Canaanites managed to remain in those areas, and whenever Israel was strong militarily, they forced the Canaanites to do hard labor, but they never totally conquered them. So now we're seeing lots of failures now. Now it's not just a city here and there. Now it's city after city after city after city, because once you begin to fail in one city because you made a little compromise, then it just starts snowballing. And notice now that they're justifying the fact that they didn't kill them by oppressing them, making them forced labor. Well, we're not living with them. I mean, we're not killing them because of them that kind of inhumane after all. And, but we're, we're, we're forcing them to slavery. So we're not intermixing with them. We're not living with them. And they're not our neighbors. I'm not going to buy CDs from them. The reality is, because that was a horrible, evil thing in the 90s, we're just, we're enslaving them. But they still are disobeying God. They're still disobeying God. Verse 29, The men of Ephraim did not conquer the Canaanites living in Gezer. The Canaanites lived among them. Now we've stopped conquering them, but we're forcing them into slavery. But now we're not even oppressing them in slavery. Now we're living among them. It just happens slowly. The men of Asher did not conquer the people living in Akau or Sidon. And they did not conquer Ahalab, Rechizeb, and I can't say all these names, Halaba, Aphek, and Rehob. And the people of Asher lived among the Canaanites, residing in the land because they did not conquer them. The men of Natalia did not conquer the people living in Beth Shemesh or Beth Anath. They lived among the Canaanites, residing in the land of the Canaanites, living in Beth Shemesh and Beth Anath. And when they forced them to do hard labor, the Amorites forced the people of Dan to live in the hill country. Now notice it's going the other way. Now they're not conquering the Israelites. They're not conquering the enemy. They're forcing labor. But now Dan is trying to conquer their territory. And now the enemy is forcing them to live somewhere else. So the forcing has been flipped now. 
And that will become important to understand that Dan was forced to live somewhere else when we get to the end of Judges, because that plays a key role. The Amorites forced the people of Dan to live in the hill country. They did not allow them to live in the coastal plain. And the Amorites managed to remain in Har Hares, Ahijalan, Shalabim, and where the tribe of Joseph was strong militarily, the Amorites were forced to do hard labor. But the border of the Amorite territory ran from um, Scorpio ascent to Sela and on up. Yahweh's angelic messenger, chapter 2, verse 1, went up from Gilgad to Bochum. And he said, I brought you up from Egypt and led you into the land that I had solemnly promised to give you to your ancestors. I said, I will never break my agreement with you, and you must not make an agreement with the people who live in this land. You should tear down their altars where they worship, but you have disobeyed me. Why would you do such a thing? At that time, I also warned you, if you disobeyed, I will not drive out the Canaanites before you. They will ensnare you, and their gods will lure you away. And when Yahweh's messenger finished speaking these words to all the Israelites, the people wept loudly, and the name, they named that place Boikam and offered sacrifices to Yahweh there. And Boikam means the weeping ones. This first section of the prologue ends with their failure, failure, failure. And this is all historical. They failed to take the city, they failed to take the city because they had superior military technology, all that kind of stuff. But then God wraps up this historical, factual, descriptive account with an angelic word from Yahweh. And the angel gives you the real reason why they have failed. He says, I, your God, I delivered you when no one else did. I brought you to this land when no one else did. But I told you to tear down the idols and you have not. And I told you that if you didn't do that and you worship the idols, then I would give you into the hands of the enemy. So what is God basically saying? Why have they failed to conquer all these cities? Not because of military, but because they begin to worship the idols of the Canaanites and God began to leave them in a supernatural way. Not in a relational way but in a supernatural military deliverance way. And so this transitions you into the second part of the prologue, which that's the point it's going to make. Because now that we have the angel's word, and it says, oh, by the way, this really had nothing to do with iron chariots, had nothing to do with them compromising, really, had everything to do with their idolatry compromise. And God began to withdraw. <laughs> 